If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you? It is podcast time. And is that your Ned going gurgling? Was it? Was it? Was that, I just, I'm so used to it now. It just, John's Ned, by the way. It just has a life of its own. It has a life of its own. Oops, sorry about that. How, how are you, Ed? I'm good, apart from a gurgling Ned. <laughs> It's a, it's a sign of prosperity, John. I wonder gurgling. is that a hangover from from the COVID of last week? We can blame the COVID. I think yeah. it just might be a hangover. <laughs> right, it might be. Just, but Ned's saying, <laughs> give me a break. How's the crack with you? Crack is all good. Crack is all good. Just kind of chasing the tail, all that sort of carry on. But did I tell you, I, I have a metabolic age of 45. Oh, I'm, I'm never going to hear the end of this. Isn't this fantastic? <laughs> I went to the doctor feeling brutal. <laughs> I mean, the whole family were hoping for some sort of thing, like, yeah. you know, ease just up. Just keep them under 90, maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, he just looks at me and says, metabolic age 45, 10 years off. <laughs> so now I'm unbound. Right. Oh, my God. <laughs> right, let's go up to Arthur for a few scoops in the afternoon. <laughs> no, I want to talk to you about third world debt. Oh, right. Because it's back. But I actually want to frame it in an old... I'm going to talk, talk to the story. Go on. Do you remember... The Rumble in the Jungle. Yes. Do you remember it was in October of 1974? So we were very little. Right? Yes. Eight we were. Exactly. Now, given that I have a metabolic age of 45, I wasn't born yet. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but uh, my dad rented a colour TV so we could watch. The, of course, back fight. in those days, you, you rented stuff like yeah. that as opposed to buy TVs. And for some reason, did you come around to our house? You probably did. You probably did, yeah. Right? To watch it. And it was on the middle of the night. And it was so exciting. Yeah. Because they had to get it African time for the American networks. So the American networks, so it had to be five hours ahead. Right. I.e., so the Yanks could watch it at 9 a.m. Or 9 yeah. p.m. in America. So it was on like two or three and things. So it was the yeah. most exciting thing. But the worst thing was the colour TV. <laughs> and I was so excited about having colour TV. And he rented it from Eddie Totterdale down in the Totterdale's, yeah. And he gave the fucking thing back the next day. <laughs> he just rented it for, for the one, one day. <laughs> Probably cost him an absolute fortune as I well. I came back from school, turned on the TV, <laughs> expecting Tom and Jerry in colour, and I was in black and white. 
I'm traumatised by that. Why? I mean, why colour TV? The, the, I mean, if it was a snooker match, I get it. But it was a box match. You don't I know colour. It was just the event. It was such a big event, right? Because I, I remember, remember you watch Match of the Day and they'd say, you know, Leeds and Arsenal, Leeds are playing left to right. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was black and white. He didn't know which team was which. Right. Anyway, I want to talk to you about the... Go on, go on, go on. The reason the rumble in the jungle, this is the important thing, mm. was in Zaire, which is now Congo, was because Mobutu paid Don King, Don King being the promoter, mm-hmm. right, an absolute fortune to put the fight in Africa, right? It was also a function of the fact that the Black Panthers, the Pan-African movement amongst American blacks was very, 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 yeah, it was yeah. very current at the time. Yeah, and Ali, the height, yeah. Ali and Foreman were both big supporters, right? Because Ali had gone to the Nation of Islam, and Ali had been a pacifist, but he was also the Nation of Islam was all about going back to Africa, and he went back to Africa afterwards. Yeah. and Louis Farrakhan was all about going back to Africa. All yeah. that sort of stuff. Yeah. Right? yeah. However, for our purposes, we're not going to talk about color TVs, although it is a trauma, as you can see, many years <laughs> later. Right? Okay. Like we didn't even do it for the World Cup. We watched. <laughs> World Cup in black and white with the boxing. But the reason there was so much money in Africa, in Zaire at the time, that Mobutu could pay them was because Mobutu and many, many African leaders, but particularly Mobutu, borrowed hugely in the 1970s off the back of, it's a fascinating story, the oil crisis happens in 83, 73, right? Oil crisis, yeah. 73. Arabs put up the price of oil. Huge amount of Western money floods into the Arab countries, the Gulf countries. The Gulf countries are particularly backward at the time. Mm. They can't spend enough money, right? So they give the money back to the Western banks. But the Western economies were in a recession as a result of the price of oil going up. So the bankers, particularly Citibank, said, who do we lend this money to? And a guy called Reston, who was the chairman of Citibank, said, let's lend it to countries because countries can't go bust. How wrong was he? Right. Right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. They lent it to countries that produce commodities. So lots and lots of what called emerging market countries in Africa borrowed hugely and Latin America, okay, off the back of their commodity mm. income. Then the commodity prices collapse and you have a third world debt crisis. So that's the economic, that's why it was in Africa at the time. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Now, interestingly, we're exactly the same point in the economic cycle now. Oh, go on. African countries have borrowed huge amounts in the last 10 years, yeah. right? Interest rates never been lower. Again, the American banking system, the European banking system, awash with cash. Last time we were awash with cash because it was Arab money. Yeah. This time we were awash with cash because it's QE, because the money was free. Yes, of course. Yeah, so yeah. where did the QE money go? Lots and lots of places, but it also went to enormous amounts of emerging market finance on infrastructure. But some of it's in infrastructure, but lots of it was in the back pocket yeah. of the local leaders. So you have a peak now in debt in the third world. Plus you have COVID, which destroys their tourist industry. Mm. And you have now this latest crisis. So we're looking at a third world crisis. And the way in which it plays out will be absolutely consequential to hundreds of millions of people. So rather than me talking about colour TVs and the rumble in the jungle and why it happened, <laughs> let's go to the one campaign 
David McNair is the policy director of the One Campaign. They're involved in all the drop the debt, as you know, Bono's drop the debt stuff, and now they're in negotiating all sorts of debt relief for yeah. poor countries. Yep. So let's go to David, and let's talk about the coming third world debt crisis. Now, fascinatingly, as we've always said in the podcast, that all sorts of interlinks, all sorts of connections, all sorts of coupling, decoupling, characterize the global economy. And sometimes when an event happens, such as Russia, such as increasing in interest rates, such as the increase in the price of food, we never really follow the money in the sense of saying, where will this land, right? We always think about ourselves in Ireland, or we think about Europe, or we think about the United States, or we think about the developed world, for example, or then in a block, we might think about Asia, whatever. But we don't understand, or we don't follow the money and say, what is happening particularly in poorer countries. Now, on the line, I am delighted to have David McNair, who is the policy director of the One Campaign. And we're going to talk about third world debt, the indebtedness of poor countries and what's likely to happen to them over the course of the next 12 months. David, how are you? Very well, thanks. It's great to be with you. Lovely, lovely to see you. Lovely to see you. Now, David, explain to me, what is the position with respect to the poorer countries around the world who are indebted right now? Well, I should start by saying that sovereign debt can be a good thing if it's affordable and it allows countries to invest in infrastructure or other things that grow the economy. But problems arise if the debt isn't invested well uh, or if circumstances unexpectedly change, meaning the country can, can no longer afford its repayments. And that's the situation we're in now in a lot of countries. So there are there are four layers to this. Actually, there are a lot more than four layers, but let's stick with four for now. We'll do the four no. and then we'll see where we go. Sure. Uh, so number one, we've just had a decade of rising debt driven by cheap money and a massive need for infrastructure investments, as well as uh, a rapidly rising population, particularly in Africa. Um, So rising debt. Number two, the COVID crisis put major pressure on vulnerable economies. So tourism industries were hit, migrant remittances fell. And we're now in a situation where indebtedness is at a 50-year high. And more than half of the poorest countries are in or at high risk of debt distress, according to the IMF. That's the second layer. Third layer, Putin invades Ukraine, which sends shockwaves through food and energy markets. Uh, So Russia and Ukraine are the breadbaskets of the world, making up a third of the world's wheat exports. uh, And global food prices are now 30% higher than they were a year ago. So you've got a group of countries that were already struggling to pay debts in the wake of COVID. They import a lot of food and energy, so their import bills have gone up dramatically. So not a good situation. Then add a fourth layer, which is that the majority of their debt is denominated in US dollars. And that means that with the Federal Reserve in the US trying to tame US inflation, it's raising interest rates, which will increase the cost of servicing that debt in a couple of different ways. One, it could devalue local currency, but also about a third of that debt is on variable rates. So just like your mortgage or your credit card payments, whatever, the costs could go up. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a cocktail of of countries that are under major pressure economically, can't afford to service this debt, have got rising food bills, and it's not looking like a good situation for a lot of countries. And we see even this week that a country, I mean, like for example, Sri Lanka is a good example of a country that just defaulted on its debt this week, just just can't pay, just doesn't have the money, or is keeping whatever foreign exchange reserves. So. Just while we're we're talking, basically, money supply in countries is two bits, right? One is what they call domestic credit expansion, which is what the central bank can do on its own. 
And the other is foreign exchange reserves. And you need foreign exchange reserves to pay for imports. So a country like Sri Lanka said, look, we now have a choice. Either we can pay our creditors or we can pay our suppliers. And frankly, we're going to pay our suppliers of food and energy next week rather than the creditors. So explain, explain the sort of countries we're talking about and that sort of Sri Lankan choice that is faced by many of them. Well, Sri Lanka has been in trouble for a while. So uh, in July last year, Bloomberg said that it had the highest risk of default in Asia. And it's taken on, you know, infamously a uh, major loan from China for its port. It applied for Chinese debt relief earlier this year and no agreement was reached. So really, as you said, you know, it's basically a kind of trade-off between do we kind of pay for domestic energy and food bills or do we pay our creditors? Now, it has a 30-day grace period, so hopefully there'll be some kind of deal that can be worked out with the IMF. Um, But that's just one example, perhaps an extreme one. But if you look at other countries, I mean, the IMF has said that there are 30 low-income countries that are in or at high risk of, of debt distress. And if you look at, you know, I mean, there are also, you know, a lot of kind of middle income countries that are, you know, strategically important. Pakistan, Turkey, Tunisia, Egypt, Ghana and Kenya are at high risk. And let's, I mean, let's just take a look at Kenya. The last month, the Kenyan Treasury announced that the cost of servicing national debt has surpassed the government's expenditure for the first time in the country's history. Wow. Wow. Um, so out of every dollar of taxpayer money, 57 cents goes on servicing the country's debt. 70% of GDP is the is the debt burden. So in that kind of scenario, you know, you could be looking in the next 12 months at Kenya kind of getting into a pretty tricky state. And that's a country that's going into an election where the, you know, the president and, you know, the political dynamics are that they're going to want to, you know, increase spending to kind of serve their sure. their interests. So it's a, it's a pretty tr- tricky co- cocktail. And also, you know, Kenya, strategically important for East Africa. There's, you know, particularly in the north, the kind of major challenge with food insecurity, droughts and floods at the same time. And that, you know, is also a cocktail for instability, as it is in Egypt, where, you know, the country is dependent on Russia and Ukraine for 70% of its wheat. So you could see costs going oh, up. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, as, as I think, as we've said before in the podcast, and I think you and I have even chatted in private, you know, the Arab Spring, particularly the Arab Spring, was a function of food price increases, unexpected food price increases, which completely undermine the stability of these countries. What I want to talk to you today is, is about what is your, when you look into the crystal ball at the one campaign, and um, we we'll see, so US interest rates are set to go higher, okay, number one. Food prices are probably set to go higher because quite soon we're going to see, if, is there any harvest in Ukraine? We have internal turmoil in these countries, as you said, we have tourism not coming back in the same way, as you said. And we have this extraordinary, but almost inevitable consequence of easy money that the debts are there and they can't go away, or they, maybe they can. What's your, what's your crystal ball in the next 10, 12 months? And I think we're going to see you know, more countries defaulting. We're going to see you know, more food rights. We're going to see I mean, the, the, the World Bank has already estimated that about 90 million people could be pushed into extreme poverty because of these increased food prices. I mean, what we really need is A, a comprehensive solution to debt restructuring and B, more economic support for vulnerable countries. So, I mean, maybe I could, I could talk about each of those. On, on the latter, we've been doing a lot of work in the One Campaign on a highly esoteric IMF policy called uh, Special Drawing Rights, which is a... Uh, You'll have to explain them to me now. Uh, so set up in the 1960s, it's basically an IMF reserve 
asset that is valued on a basket of currencies. And basically, like a central bank, the IMF can print money effectively when, during crises to help uh, countries weather those crises. Uh, so we did a lot of work to convince the IMF board to create $650 billion worth, which the IMF board agreed to on the 23rd of August uh, last year. But because of IMF rules, they are allocated to IMF shareholders based on how many shares they have. So the majority, more than 400 billion, went to G20 countries and about 33 or about 5% went to African countries. So the countries that need them the most got the least. So now we're trying to convince those G20 countries to share their special drawing rights with low-income countries to help them weather the COVID crisis and now the Ukraine crisis. David, can I stop you there? So, so this, is, this is actually a pretty fantastic result from the one campaign, that you've actually convinced the IMF to release the money. Now the money has been released, potentially. It's in the hands, as you say, of the people who don't need it most, who are probably need least. And your campaign is to try and persuade those countries to make that money available to poorer countries. And are you getting any success? Is there pushback? Where are you at with that? Because a lifeline like this, and it is a lifeline, a lifeline like this could be dramatically consequential for poor countries. So we are making some progress, but it, it's it's highly, highly geopolitical. So we convinced, or we helped convince with others, the G7 and then the G20 to, to establish this 100 billion target that out of the 650 billion that had been allocated, 100 billion would be shared from rich countries to, to poor countries. And so far, a number of European countries and China have come through. So we've got about 36 billion. But the country with the largest volume of SDRs is the United States. And this is where it gets geopolitical, because in order for those SDRs to be released, it requires congressional approval. And that was in the US omnibus bill a few weeks ago. And it was taken out at the last minute because one particular U.S. senator doesn't like SCRs. He thinks it's basically you know money that is going to benefit China. So he wanted right. A lot so more you're 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 deep and in, you're deep in the in the geopolitics of all this. Just with my with my former economist in a bank hat on, what is the fear that the SDRs are released from, let's say, America, and they just simply go to pay the creditors? rather than the countries. So you've got rich, let's do it, rich white bankers getting paid by citizens of large, of, of rich white countries and the poor African countries not getting anything. Well, this, this is the problem. Uh, you know, it's rich white bankers and it's China. And it's, it's almost like everyone's sitting in a room and everyone's pointing to the, to the other person saying, you move first. So the G7 and particularly the United States don't want to kind of offer more support because it could just end up be, okay. going to... BlackRock or, or you know, the Chinese government. Larry, Larry Fink's back pocket are one of those guys. No, right. was that, yeah. I mean, that is, that, is, that is the fear because I remember years ago working in emerging markets and which they were called emerging markets and then studying the history of debt defaults and studying the debt defaults in Mexico, Brazil, Argentina of the 1980s and then those countries getting blocked out completely and then you had Brady bonds coming in to try and fix that and then you had another debt crisis in the 90s and and then you had the Russian default in the late 90s and this is a recurring theme in financial markets and as you said it's always preceded by a period of easy money. So overlending by bankers on the one hand driven by short-term profits, overborrowing by countries driven by the opportunity to take money now that they've never had before. As you said sometimes 
investing in proper stuff, sometimes investing in the World Cup, right? We know that, like Argentinian World Cup, Mexican World Cup, all comes consonant with huge borrowings. But those debt crises really caused, in the Latin American sense, this is where I want to go to about Africa, in the Latin American sense, really caused Latin America to be shut off from the world for at least, when I say world, world finance, for at least 10 or 15 years. Is that what we're looking at in Africa? I mean, is there, because, you know, everyone says that, you know, Africa's population is rising, there is huge opportunity in Africa, etc. but it needs to be financed some way. And if they default now, is there a risk that Western finance just stops going to Africa? So that, that's, that's a, a really interesting dynamic that we're picking up from African leaders. I mean, first I should say, you know, the IMF has a, a really interesting study that basically suggests that if a country defaults, it takes five years to get, get back on track. You know, in that process, you can basically lose a decade of development progress. So that's, that's a real problem to start off with. But the interesting thing is that when COVID hit, you know, we launched a campaign and we said, you know, African debts should be cancelled. And our African partner said, no, no, we don't want that. Because the thing that we want is access to capital markets yep. at lower costs. Yep. And if we, you know, go through a debt restructuring process, we'll, you know, it'll hit our credit rating and, you know, we're, we're going to have less money rather than more at a time when we need more money. And the other dynamic to that is that a number of African countries, Ghana is kind of leading on this, are really fed up with the kind of preaching from the West. Uh, yeah, no, I'm sure. Of, you know, I'm sure. You know, I mean, there's human rights stuff, but there's also just a lot of hypocrisy. So they, you know, in some cases, they would rather go to China at a higher cost or go to capital markets at a higher cost because they've got freedom and and also because they can move a lot faster. One African head of state spoke to to my boss a couple of years ago and said, you know, in the time that I can you know, approach China to finance and build a road, um, they will have built the road while I'm still talking to the World Bank about the contract. Right. Okay. In a, con- yeah, so in a context a- of like you know, political cycles and a rapidly rising population, speed matters, you know. Well, it's a, and, and of course for them, it's a no-brainer. It's like, you know, it's, it's a deal with the devil either way. If you are, it's, like, it's a general, like, if it, it's, it's exactly the same when you get a mortgage. Nobody really cares if it's from Bank of Ireland, AIB, you know, Ulster Bank, whatever, right? It's a deal with the devil. You get the money, you pay the rate of interest, you don't care. And like mm-hmm. likewise, a lot of developing countries. And But can I ask you then about the politics of it? Because... You mentioned Kenya. I was in Kenya about three years ago doing a bit of work for Oxfam. And I'd never been in Kenya before. Flew into Nairobi. And of course, chatted to the taxi driver. You're the first guy you get in and you say, okay, Grant, let's go. And we're chatting. I said, what's the story here? And we were chatting, 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 chatting. And then he said to me, I said, what's the biggest change in Kenya you've seen over the last 10 years? And he said, he was kind of, and I was expecting him to talk about poverty. I was supposed to talk about you know, lots of things. And he said, China. And I said, how do you mean China? He said, Chinese people, not the Chinese government. And I said, how do you mean Chinese people? He says, Chinese people in our markets selling stuff, like getting down and dirty, selling stuff to Kenyans. And I said, how many Chinese people are here? He says, I don't know, but that's what we've seen. He said, we're getting much closer to them. They're getting much closer to us. I heard the same story in South Africa as well, not not that long afterwards. To what extent now is this the great game? between the West, represented by the IMF and the banking community at one level, and China on the other level, that both these big powers are trying to buy influence in Africa to secure the future? I think that's absolutely the game. And I think the risk is that 
both Europe and North America have kind of been a bit asleep at the wheel because, you know, there's, there's lots of kind of like fist banging and you know, table banging about, you know, China's growing influence. But the truth is that, you know, the Europe and, and the US have not stepped up with a comparable offer. So two really interesting things. So there was a, an EU-AU summit, European Union, African Union summit, just before Putin invaded Ukraine. And at the end of that summit, Cyril Ramaphosa, the South African president, gave an interview. So at the summit, the EU had promised 150 billion euros of investment in Africa. And he was asked about it. And he said, listen, let's see what happened, because we've been promised climate finance. We've been promised investment finance. We've been promised special drawing rights. And None of it's appeared. So there's this real sense of, of trust, which was, was actually a kind of a trust deficit, which was made worse by COVID because the, you know, the way in which Europe and North America monopolized vaccine supply during the height of the yes, pandemic absolutely. really, really, you know, it really, really affected that relationship. And at the same time, Russia and China were pouring vaccines into the continent. So there's a, a real dynamic here. And the second thing I was going to say is it was really striking in the recent UN votes condemning Russia's actions in Ukraine. There were two votes condemning Russia's actions in Ukraine, and then there was also a vote to get Russia out of the the Human Rights Council. And in each of those votes, half of the countries that abstained from voting were African. And there are a number of theories behind that. Uh, One is just that, you know, they don't want to get involved in other people's wars, you know, the non-aligned movement and all that. Another is hypocrisy because they they see what NATO did in Libya in 2011. So there's a sense of, you yeah. know, this is, you know, we don't want to get pulled into this. But the other really interesting theory is that actually African countries can no longer depend on the West and therefore they need to hedge their bets uh, in terms of access to finance, inter- you know, military support, food. And actually, Dmitry Medvedev, the former Russian president, said two weeks ago that Russia is absolutely going to weaponize its food exports to win influence elsewhere. So there's been vaccine diplomacy, there's economic diplomacy. It now looks like there's going to be wheat diplomacy. And this is a situation where I think, you know, Europe and North America really need to kind of wake up and say, you know, actually the economic support that we provide to these countries is not charity. This is about A, averting, you know, instability and B, you know, the the influence that we have in this, in this, you know, emerging uh, multipolar world. Well, it's true. I mean, like any sort of finance is always strategic when you get it between large countries and blocks. And there's two, there's two parts of this where I want to just conclude, David. One is we're talking big politics here. But people are suffering. That's the first thing. So give me a sense of the calamity that's potentially there in Africa, number one. And the reason I'm focusing on Africa, because African countries in the main are what we're talking about. Asian countries, by and large, are not necessarily as exposed here. And by and large, have actually improved dramatically on a material basis over the last 25 years. So number one is the actuality on the ground. And then let's go to the geostrategic stuff towards the end. Tell me what is potentially out there for these countries in the next 12, 24 months, if, for example, they default, if food prices keep rising, if their incomes continue to fall. What are we we looking at? Well, David Beasley, who's the head of the World Food Programme, has said that we're looking at a food crisis, you know, on the scale that we haven't seen since World War II. So this is much more significant than 2008 food crisis that preceded the Arab Spring. 
the World Bank has said you could be looking at an additional 90 million people pushed into extreme poverty, and that means living on $1.90 a day. Now, if you look at you know the IMF's analysis of how much families spend as a proportion of their income on, on food, it's about 60% in, in sub-Saharan Africa, higher than any region, any other region. Sure, because so, they're, they're poor. So obviously, the, you know, the poorer you are, the more you spend on basics. And also, you, you, you're more likely to rely on staples like wheat and so on, rather than you know, eating vegetables and meat. So you're actually more exposed to the, this volatility in the international food markets. That's less the case in Asia, as, as you said, both because of economic growth, but also the price of rice has not been as, as volatile as, as, as wheat and barley. So yeah, I, I think this could be kind of quite a, a severe situation if we don't you know, step in immediately. And, and to be fair, I think both the United States and, and Europe, France in particular, have recognised that this is an, a major issue and they need to kind of be getting ahead of it. And actually, there's a meeting next week of the IMF and World Bank, and I think there'll be some announcements there to address the kind of immediate fallout of, of all of this. And just, just lastly, on the big politics, right? The war in Ukraine, we've seen, has driven a coach and horses through the notion that we're all, frankly, on the same side. So you see China, India, South Africa on the Russian side, or at least equivocating. So you have the biggest, the most important country in Southern Africa, you have China, and you have India, soon to be the most populous country in the world, all saying, well, you know what? We're not really on your side, Europe and America. Frankly, we have other issues, and we have reasons not to annoy the Russians. To what extent is this the moment where the consensus of the last 30 years on many, many issues is shattered? I think it absolutely is. But but what you've seen is that in the last decade, you know, there's been a real kind of fracturing of multilateralism and a real, I mean, we've seen in our work, it's been really, really hard to get things done, even during the COVID pandemic, because the G7 are just not cooperating. And, you know, there's lots of challenges with these institutions and lack of trust in them. Whilst this has changed everything, it has also, you know, you saw, you know, immediate response to this threat, you know, unifying the transatlantic alliance, NATO, the EU coming together, yep. you know, Germany reversing its energy and defence and foreign policy within a week. So I think there is an opportunity. But what is striking about this is that there is that kind of response to kind of traditional security threats. There is not that kind of response to the new kinds of threats in terms of pandemics, in terms of you know information and disinformation wars. And we need to get smarter on that because that's where I think the real games are being played out. You know, there's a kind of there's a long game being played by by China and Russia, and we're kind of like responding to the to the immediate things, which are obviously need a response, but we also need to be playing that longer game. Yeah, no, Dave McNair, thank you so much. I just leave it. I remember a, a Russian saying to me years ago about between Russia and America. Uh, I don't know if that's absolutely the case now after what's happened in Ukraine, but he said, look, he said, you know, Russians, we play chess, and you guys, you Westerners, you play Monopoly, and frankly, that's the difference, you know. But David McNair, the policy director of One Campaign, thank you so much for talking to us. David, take care. Thank you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. David, there was really interesting, but there's a couple of things just before we get into pick apart some of the stuff that he was talking about. A deep dive, as you would say. A deep dive and unpack it. Right, Ted. But you mentioned there's a couple of things I just wanted to clear up. Brady bonds. What are they? What are they? Interesting. Actually, John, I have a note from Nicholas Brady. Oh, right. right. Nicholas Brady was the U.S. Treasury Secretary under George Bush the first. Right. Ah. So what happens in 1982, 1983? Not Chippy Brady now. Not Chippy. It hasn't got half the educated left <laughs> peg of the chip. Anyway, let's talk. To, we can talk about Chippy Brady later on. Because the Chippy Brady fan club is definitely here in the HQ in the basement. <laughs> right. The lodge. In the lodge. In the, in the orange lodge. But 1982, you can you can. Actually, remember we talked about sporting events? Yes. You can map third world debt crises from sporting events because dictators love sport. In the same way as Putin loved having the Winter Olympics. Xi had the Winter Olympics. They love it, right? It's it's bread and circuses, right? And the 82 World Cup is in Spain, but the 86 World Cup is in Mexico in the middle of a debt crisis. The 78 World Cup yes. is in Argentina in the middle of a crisis, a debt crisis. So basically, because the dictators use all this money to splurge, to have these sort of events, right? So in the 70s, all these countries borrow lots of money. Mm. But they borrow in dollars. Exactly the same thing is happening yeah. today. The 80s, the American Federal Reserve under Paul Walker sent interest rates up to 20%, right? And that has two impacts. It profoundly drives up the interest rate on debt, yeah. An existing debt. But it also, what it does is it drives the dollar up. So once the dollar goes up, the interest rate goes up, 
these countries have to generate more and more and more revenue just to pay the existing Yeah, debt. yeah, just stand still. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so they all default, right? Mexico, yeah. Brazil, Argentina, all these big Latin American players, as well as all of Africa. Mm. So what happens when you default is you get locked out of the financial markets. So people won't lend to you again because you've already defaulted. Yeah. So you have to clear up that mess. And what was happening in the 80s, and this is the fascinating thing, this is all, it's all to do with the CIA, right? In the 80s, yeah, it is, it is. Conspiracy corner No, here. no, 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 no. Like old man Bush was the head of the CIA, yeah. right? What the Americans were absolutely worried about in the 80s was Nicaragua, Cuba, yeah. Venezuela. All the Sandinistas. All and- going communist. Why? Because the Russians, emboldened with lots of oil money, had loads of money to feed into these revolutionary movements in Latin America. Yeah. So the Americans in Washington said, if these people are locked out of financial markets indefinitely, this will only cause these economies to collapse. This will embolden left-wing movements, communist movements. They're going to be financed by the Russians, and we need to come up with a debt restructuring package to bring those people back into the American right. field. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fold. So they said, what we will do is we will issue new bonds. So what happens, imagine Argentina owes $100, yes. right? Those $100, there's creditors looking to be paid, right? They do a deal with the creditors. They say, look, you're only going to be paid 60 cents in the dollar. Eventually they do that deal. But the Argentinians need to come up with 60 cents, which they don't have. Okay. Okay. So the Americans issued these things called Brady bonds, which so they retired $100 worth of, let's say, Argentinian debt. They reissued a new 60, right? They were, those bonds were backed by the American government. So what they basically said to investors is, we're going to pay you all back. You're going to take what they call a haircut, like you're going to take a discount. But these new bonds that we have issued with the face of Argentina on it are going to be backed by us. Right? Right, okay. So they were called okay. Brady Bonds. So what that got, that got the system working again and again. Are they right? still kind of out there? Some and... of them are still out there. I used to trade them. That's how I know this sort of stuff. Oh, right, right? Okay. Because all those all those third world debts, those emerging markets debts, when I were, ended up working in a French bank, BNP, it was the French debt, yeah. to anyone. Yeah. And the, the, there, was a, there was what I call a proprietary trading desk in this bank. And what yeah. they were doing, they were buying defaulted debt Okay, debt that hadn't been covered by Brady bonds. Right. Of really poor countries. And they were hoping to buy them at five cents in the dollar, 10 cents in the dollar, that there would be a restructuring and that the Americans would pay you 60 cents. Jesus so it was a game Christ. of chicken with yeah. the Yanks, right? Yeah. And, and what the, happened? The bizarre things I've done for a cross job over the years. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> most of those debts were paid, except now, and this is the problem, right? Is those Brady bonds were great for large countries. But what happened was really small countries that had borrowed as well. Yeah. Those debts have to be forgiven. And that's what Bono's campaign is all about. It's like it's Brazil, Argentina, they can get their act together. They're big. What about your your Ghana's, your Bakuna Fasus, you know, your Nigeria's, which are big but poor country, all those Central African republics, Zaire, Congo, all those places. They need debt forgiveness in order to start again. Yeah. And it's, we go back and- but, they, but those countries though, also, well, some of those countries that you mentioned there have huge amount of resources. They have huge commodities, yeah. But again, you know, what, what you find is that the problem with debt is that once debt goes above 100% of GDP, mm-hmm. right? It's a very strange thing. Your rate of growth 
has to be higher than the rate of interest for you to stand still. Sure. And lots and lots of those countries had a zero or negative growth rates for a long time. So the debt just ballooned. And then over the last 20 years, the campaigns to drop the debt have been basically trying to say to creditors, look at this from a moral perspective, right? Yeah. You're not going to get your money back. And if you do get your money back, it's almost blood money, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. So look at it from a moral perspective. But in order to have that, in order to clear the path, you need to get the Americans on side. So most of those campaigns have been trying to convince people like George Bush, like yeah. Bill Clinton, yeah. like as, as, as David was just saying, you know, the IMF, trying to get them to green light yeah. the debt forgiveness. Because if you don't, you get what's called holdouts. Now, these are really weird creatures. These are the sort of people, these are your vulture funds, right? Holdouts. These, they're called holdouts. So you get right. a deal, it's done, right? So let's say Nicaragua does a deal and says, we're going to pay back all our debt at 20 cent, yeah. right? And all the creditors are put into a room and they say, here's the offer. And the IMF say, this is the best deal you could possibly get, right? 90% of people will take that deal. Yeah. They'll say, okay. It's the only one on the table. But what's called holdouts will not, and they will legally challenge. So these are really, there's a there's a company called Elliott and Associates, right? In New York. Right. Okay. Because I've worked with these people. Yeah, right? yeah. And they will do things like impound Nicaraguan ships and take Nicar take over the Nicaraguan embassy in Washington say, unless you oh, pay us all, they're horrible, right? Yeah. Unless you pay us everything, we will take this piece of real estate. And they will then go to the American courts, not the international court, yeah. where the rights of creditors are always superior to the rights of debtors. And under American law, they will impound the assets of these really poor countries. I mean, it's really immoral wow. stuff. So in the savannah of debt traders, mm. there are, there's a creepy end. Okay? Right, yeah. And those guys are at the creepy end and they're quite immoral. And Absolutely. They sound I've awful. dealt with them and, you know, it's an extraordinary thing because what they're Only doing... Only in America, man. Yeah. Only in yeah. America. And what they're doing is there's... They, I, the reason I take Nicaragua because Nicaragua's Good example, because they did impound Nicaraguan planes. So Air Nicaragua, right. right? Right, yeah, yeah. When they landed in America. Yeah. You know, so those people are what we call, these, they're called holdouts. Now you get them in every debt restructuring, you get these people, right? Yeah. But when it comes to third world debt, I mean, these guys are particularly despicable. So, so but the key thing is, John, just for you, in order for a debt restructuring to happen, somebody has to pay some creditor, something. Yes. So you need to find dollars from somewhere. So in that case then, is the third option on the table, which is you don't take your kind of 20 cents in the dollar, the dollar. or you don't have, you're not a hodl. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hold <laughs> out. Hold are the, 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 the Bitcoiners. Yeah, Hold on for dear life. But the third way then is, and particularly in terms of Africa at the moment, is the likes of China and Russia come in and kind of carve and do it the up, deal. Do well, the deal. What they do is that so the Chinese will say, "Look, we will retire your old debt, like the Americans did with the Brady bonds." What a gentle way of putting it. We will it. retire your old debt. <laughs> this is this is this is yeah. This is the marketing <laughs> spiel. We will retire your old debt and facilitate new borrowing. Mm. So what they will do is they will buy the stuff back. The Chinese will pay the creditors. Yeah, the Western creditors, the Americans. Usually, it's usually Americans, right? Mm. So they get paid. But then the poor country, they have them by the short and curlies. 
Now, the thing about the poor country is they're kind of agnostic as to whether they get Chinese money or American money. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Money is money, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they need to build their highways and they need to build their infrastructure and their, you know, broadband and all that sort of stuff. So they're kind of thinking, well, look, you know, they're all creditors. Chinese creditors, American creditors, Russian creditors. What do I care? Yeah. And, you know, the thing about Africa... And the, they haven't been... And Sorry to interrupt, but... And also, they haven't been treated particularly well over the years by, by America Europeans. or by Europeans. Europeans. Yeah. We're colonists. Yeah, you know, yeah, they're yeah. sitting there in Africa. Says, you guys colonized so, us. So and China, talk- Russia, hey, they're yeah, okay it's, on it's, my it's, book. It's, it's like when Muhammad Ali was asked to go to Vietnam and he said, I ain't got no beef with the Viet Cong. Yeah. My beef was with white Americans. You're racist. No Viet Cong. Remember he said, no Viet Cong ever called me the N-word. Remember yeah. you said that? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And as you say, I have no beef. So you're sitting in Africa, you're thinking, I have no beef with the Chinese. Yeah. You know, they never came. They never colonized me. And frankly, the Russians didn't either. Right? Yeah. Whereas the Brits, oh yeah. And the French, oh yeah. And who was their best mate? The Yanks. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of history, which is why, you know, for example, South Africa didn't condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine. South Africa. Yes. Because South Africa is the biggest country in Southern Africa, the most important country. It's run by the ANC. Who were the ANC financed by? Soviet Union. So they have ties. And why? Because the Soviet Union stood up against apartheid. Yes. We didn't. The West didn't. Well, apart from the Dunstores workers. Apart from the Dunstores workers, but your Brits and your Americans, they all went along with white South Africa until it was, the game was almost yeah, over. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? And then it was bandwagon jumping. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So your point is exactly right. You know, if you're sitting in Africa, you have a rising population, you need economic growth, you need to educate your people, you're agnostic as to where the money comes from. And that's what David is saying, is like, not only is this strategic in politics, but this is the future. Mm. You know, by 20... 84 people in 10 in the world will be African. Yeah. Right? So this is the future. And then, of course, you know, there is also the moral thing. What is actually happening is these people are starving. We're going to, we, we talked to the chicken the other day. We did, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. We talked to the chicken. He talked about coming food crises. Now, David McNair has just said the head of the UN Food security said, yes, there is a food crisis coming. So forget the economics. Unless these people in Africa, these countries, get a debt deal, they could starve. They could starve because they need foreign exchange to buy the wheat that they're importing, yes. that the yeah. price is going up. Yeah. And if we say, oh, well, just use some of that foreign exchange to pay these creditors who are sitting in feckin' Fifth Avenue on their Swiss roll, yeah. you know, these people are going to starve. So, I mean, this isn't a game. This is real life. While I have you there, listen, I just want to say thank you so much to all our Patreons who really supported myself and John throughout the last nearly three years. Man. Three years, wow. Oh, it's a long time. I thought it only started last week. It's such good crack, though, isn't it? It is, it is, it is. It is. It's, like, it's like having the dream gig, you know. Thank you very, very much. And if you do want to support us on Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. You get ad-free, you get courses, you get chats, you can ask me questions, all sorts of stuff, and you really become part of the gang. So that's patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. And again, thank you very much.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 